Isle of Patmos. He, he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day when the people of God came together. And on that day, he saw a series of magnificent visions. And someone said the book of Revelation is kind of like God take, pulling back the curtain and letting us see what it's all going to really be like. And this is that final revelation where John, where John says this in Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. This will be, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of, of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice ma magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. May God add a blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. As we look at how God is working out his purposes in history and why he is calling people together, I want to talk to you for a few weeks on the church, why he is gathering the church. And I want to give to you the biblical images of who the church is. Now, in keeping with our ideal of looking at the end first so that we can go toward the end, I want to give to you the last image in the Bible of the church, and that is the image of the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. First thing we should note is that God has prepared us for that image before Christ ever got on the scene. In the Old Testament, there are several references for God being the husband for his people. Let me give you just a couple of those. In Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 and 5, it says this, And the reproach of your widowhood, now these are women who have been left alone, the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more, for your husband, listen to this, is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. That is a messianic image of the husbandry of God. You will remember that the book of Hosea likened God to Hosea and Israel to the harlotry of Gomer. Gomer was Hosea's wife, and she kept running out and having affairs. And God was faithful 
and continued to forgive her. And Gomer continued to play the harlot. That image of the struggle between a faithful marriage and a harlot is throughout the scripture. Revelation 19.2 mentions the harlot of Babylon. The harlot is the world's way of getting gratification and not to stay faithful. So therefore, let's talk this morning about what it means to be married to God. What it means to be his betrothed. And I want to give you three images this morning. I want to give you an image of the price that he's paid. I want to give you the image of the process. What happens between now and the actual wedding feast of the church and the Lord. And then an image of the passage. What it's going to be like when it comes back for us. First of all, the price. I want you to know that Christ paid the ultimate price for us. First of all, let me take you back to what it meant in Jewish tradition for a man to go through the wedding process with a woman. These are just some bits that I have heard from Zola Levitt. In the old days, a man would pick out the woman that he wanted to marry. Now, this may have been prearranged by their parents or by his parents. It may have been that he saw her for the first day. However it was, you need to know that romance had very little to do with this whole thing, if anything. There was nothing of romantic love involved. It was an arrangement. And living up to that arrangement, the man would go and have a conference, sit across the table from the bride's father and the potential bride. And he would offer a price for her hand in marriage. Now, in the Middle Ages, this price was called a dowry. But he assumed that the family would be giving up a sacrifice. He knew that they had put much of their life into the development of that young lady. And so he certainly believed that he needed to offer them compensation for her. It's curious that American men believe that there are plenty of compensation enough. But not in those days. Those days you went to the father and you offered compensation for that woman. Now, if the father accepted the compensation that you had brought, then that was the first step. Now, I have mentioned Christ's compensation for us. The imagery is set in Ephesians chapter 5. Read this with me. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Is it too cold for you this morning? Let me turn that down. <laughs> Mixed signals. I don't know what to do. Verse 25, husbands, it says, love your wives. Now, that's a present imperative tense. It means repeated, continual action. Continue to love your wives over and over again. Continually love your wives. Okay? Just as Christ also loved the church and, look what it says, gave himself up for her. What was the price that Christ bought, brought, for us, it was his own life, wasn't it? His sacrifice. So when we take communion and we break the bread, if you look at that in a proposal ceremony, the broken body of Christ is the price that he pays so that he might propose to us. 
Now, that's the first step. If the father accepted the price, then he would put a cup before the, before the woman. Now, if the woman didn't drink, the deal was off. But if the woman picked up that cup and drank of it, then there was an official betrothal. By the way, the image is here again. He puts the cup before us. When we drink of this cup, we are accepting his proposal to become his bride. Now, in the official betrothal, there was a state for however long that they would stay engaged, but the husband had one more duty. The duty of the potential husband was to go off and build a bridal chamber for them. And that's exactly what he did. Now, no one knew how long that would take. He didn't know how long that would take. No one knew how long that would take. But he would go off and build them a bridal chamber, a house, a, in biblical language, mansion. Now, this is what is mentioned in John chapter 14. This is read at many funerals, by the way. It says, um, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. First it says, in my father's house are many, what? Mansions. See, that's the bridal chamber. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. And will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Okay? So that's the imagery. Christ is off building a mansion for us right now. That's why we sing, in mansions of glory and endless delight. See? If ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, tis now. See, that's why we sing about mansions, the mansion in the sky. That's the bridal chamber. And the Bible says that he will come back. And sure enough, in the old days, he came back when it was done. Not on an appointed day, but whenever it was done, whenever he was ready, whenever home was ready for that bride. She didn't know when it would be. Now, there are lots of allusions in the, in the New Testament to that. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 25, I'll show you one. The first nine verses. This is the parable, but it mirrors very closely the historic circumstance. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. Virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. Now they had a, an inkling that the wedding party was coming, that the groom was coming back for the wife, all right, for the betrothed. And so therefore they went out to be in this wedding party. It's the nighttime. They're taking their lamps. They don't know how long it's going to take them. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, let me say this is a parable of the church also. There are many who are coming in to this wedding ceremony, wanting to be a part of this wedding ceremony, and they're going to bring whatever it takes to bring to full purpose this wedding. They're going to they're going to come and they're going to say, anything I got, I'm bringing along. I'm going to have whatever reserve it takes to stay until this wedding happens. Those are the five wise young ladies. But there were also five who said, party, huh? 
Yeah, I kind of like a party. I'll go hang out. It's, it's neat to hang around neat people who are having a lot of fun. So therefore, I'll go hang around. But you see, in the parable, they don't have the reserve to stick it out. The first time they're disappointed, or the second or the third time they're disappointed, or, or they things are not going right, where are they? They're out of there. See? They're out of there. And so it is in the church. There are many in here who mean business, who want to go for it with God. And they indeed will bring whatever is necessary of their life, whatever they can, to come and help that marriage come to consummation. But there are also those who say, yeah, church is a neat place. You've got neat people, you know, nice place to meet somebody, so on and so forth, you know. And they're in for a little bit of time. But, uh, but they don't have the reserves that it takes to stick it out. Well, what happens? Look what it says. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Now, I want you to notice two things here. First of all, this wedding party is coming in the middle of the night. It wasn't on an appointed day, an appointed schedule. It was in the middle of the night. This woman was sound asleep in bed, probably. This is midnight here. So therefore, the bride or the groom is being kind enough to send ahead of him some sort of warning, probably a half an hour or an hour before him, so she can drag herself out of bed and put her face on. How would you like your groom to show up and you're dead in bed? And she said, hey, the wedding's now, you know? Now, if you want some more imagery for that, how it's going to be with Christ, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It's going to happen the same way. Look what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangels. He's going to send an archangel on ahead. He's a shout scout. He's going to send him on ahead so that we can be ready. With the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ is the imagery of the, of the woman getting out of bed. <laughs> Most of us, you know, get out of bed. You know, we feel pretty dead. Anyhow. But... He's going to come on his time. Just like in the old days, that groom came back on his timing and the bride was to be ready. Now, now think about this. If we are the betrothed, and if we can't plan for the ceremony, what is our job between now, when we have accepted the proposal of Christ, and the time when he comes back? You see, what happens when we take the word bride and make it into something that can't plan for a ceremony? Americans hardly know what to do with that. Because most of the time, when we think of the word bride, we think of a ceremony which we arrange for. As a matter of fact, I thought, you know, I, I wonder how nowadays... People do get ready for a wedding. How much of their energy goes into making their life fit for the groom? And how much of their energy goes into making the ceremony nice? So, I went out and bought this magazine. Modern Bride. And the first thing I noticed about this, it was three ninety-five. Holy cow! But I thought, well, this ought to... See, this is the southern edition. Apparently, they do it different in the south than they do in all the other parts. This is a southern edition. But I just looked at this. See? 
And I thought, well, here's how you get ready for a wedding right here. Honeymoon hotspots, it says. 300 romantic wedding looks. Oh, that was a wonderful article. (laughs) Delectable wedding cakes, see? I mean, this this thing, 550-some pages in this magazine, well over 500 of them were about all of the extraneous stuff in a wedding ceremony. There were, there were gowns. Here's a guy holding two puppies. I don't know what that is. But there were gowns and china and flower arrangements and, and everything. Ooh, here's, here, you guys want some subscriptions? Here's, here, see on the back it says, we believe that your silver, china, and crystal should be made for each other too. How clever is that? I'm thinking, silver, china, and crystal? Who has this stuff when they first get married? Did you guys have this stuff when you first got married? Becky and I had furniture that was early Salvation Army. I mean, nothing matched. Silver, china, and crystal? People got that these days? But you see, the whole thing is on the ceremony. The whole emphasis is on the ceremony. When I hear Christians talk about the Lord coming again, they're so excited about the event. You know what? If you plan... To make yourself ready for a bride, as a bride by planning on the event itself, two things are going to happen. Number one, you're not going to be ready for the groom. And number two, you're putting all your bets on a lot of stuff that can go wrong. As a, as, I've done hundreds of weddings. And I bet there, I know that there are other pastors out here. We could get together all day long and swap wedding stories of things that had gone wrong in weddings, couldn't we? I mean, if that's where you're banking all your effort and all your reward, watch out. The first one of the first weddings I ever had, it, it was I'll never forget it. I was just a young pastor. I didn't know. I did my premarital counseling the best I could, and they were a fine couple. I mean, she was pretty strong, and he's a little mousy, but that was okay. That's their style. Okay, I'm all right with that. But the mother, who was very strong, wanted to have it at her house. Now, this woman had questionable aesthetic taste, to say the least. I go out to this house. And they say, well, preacher, they kept calling me preacher. Preacher, here's where we want you to stand. All these wedding guests, here's where we want. And they put me under this huge picture of a horse. Not only under the horse, but under the south end of the horse. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't like the symbolism of this at all. But we get ready for the processional. Everybody's, you know, everybody's in there now, and they're all here. And the, and the dining room's off to the left. And this bride has put, now listen to this, her little brother in charge of the record player, which has the music. Now think about it, just for a minute. They have got, they have, they have procured this record that has the wedding march on it. And so, I hear this in the dining room, as does everybody who's, who is waiting for this. Play the music, stupid! Shut up! And then I hear this. And I hear this. That's the wrong side, you idiot. Shut up. <laughs> Flip the record over. Stupid idiot. Coming down there. <laughs> she gets all the way down there, looks at the groom, just wants to kill him. He's going, poor little fella. You could tell, you could tell. She had not even considered that she was marrying this guy that day. She just considered she was getting married. See? It was all on the ceremony, and her little brother messed it all up. 
I remember another one. I could, I could go on for a long time. But I remember, just one more. And don't let me frighten you if you're about to get married, because I'm sure yours will be perfect. <laughs> but I remember, I remember another one. Where in the early 70s, we were all hangover hippies in the early 70s. And, and I married, you know, this, there was this couple who wanted to get married, and I was, you know, they wanted to get married in a cornfield in Indiana. Oh, okay, you know. There's a little bale symbolism there I'm not too comfortable with, but, but they want, and this, there was this pastor that came to a corner in a cornfield, the Indiana corn was all up, and, and, uh, but the other side of it was they all wanted to be addressed very formally. So here's these bunch of old hippies, you know, stuffed in these penguin tuxedos, you know. They're all trying to do it upright, and they've got chairs out there, and, and right before the ceremony, I heard this real weird sound. From the from the uh, congregation or the audience, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Well, later I found out what it was. Right before that wedding ceremony, there was this huge downpour. I mean, it just rained. Well, in Indiana, if you're from the Midwest, you'll know that in August when it rains, bugs start hopping. You know, well the rain stopped and the sun came out, which made the bugs hop higher. And the mother was marching down this center aisle just as distinguished, as sophisticated as she could possibly be. Her dress was a layer of orange satin overlaid by a layer of uh, uh, chiffon. Is that chiffon? That real flimsy, you know, kind of like fishing net. For you guys, you don't know what it is? Fishing net that goes over your, over your face, see? Or mosquito netting. Mosquito netting. It goes over your, on your fishing hats. Layer chiffon. Very pretty dress. But two crickets had made their way up the inside of the back of that dress. On the inside layer, that chiffon, on that satin, right up to her, what my little son calls her sit-down place. And there they are hopping like crazy to get out. And they can't get out. And so she is walking down that thing, and everybody's eyes are on these crickets that have this primordial sense of impending doom. They, they know what's going to happen. She goes, everybody's looking at her. She gets right to the front and just very ceremoniously sits down. Yeah, that's what everybody did. Ugh. Oh, God. I don't know if anybody ever told her that she had two squashed bugs on her sit-down play. I don't know. All I know is this. Look, a lot of things can go wrong with a ceremony, and therefore you've got to not look in modern bride to figure out how you ought to prepare for your marriage. You ought to look in Scripture, because that tells us how to prepare. Let me say to you what Scripture says about our only job in preparing to be the bride of Christ. Because our preparation is not for the ceremony. That's up to God. We don't even know when the ceremony is going to be. Our preparation is our character to live with Him. And there's only two requirements that a young Jewish girl had. Number one was purity. To keep herself pure for that groom. So that there might be no spot or stain on his reputation. If there was some note of impurity, 
It ruined his reputation. That's why in Matthew 1.18, when they come to Joseph and Mary's pregnant, Joseph says, or the Bible says that Joseph uh, decided to put her away quietly, to divorce her quietly. It's not The surprise is not the divorce. The surprise is the quiet. Because the divorce was automatic. In the betrothed state, you were in some legal state there, and it was required to get a divorce even before you were married. Because that was such an important, that a betrothal state was so official. But if impurity was found, you were automatically out. See? So our, our job is, number one, purity, and number two, to prepare ourselves to live long-term with Jesus. And I saw a bride coming down out of heaven. New Jerusalem, I'm sorry. Coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now listen, this is the important part. And behold, God himself will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and he will be their God. You see the long-term dwelling that is the heavenly marriage that really is important. And so it is our job as the betrothed of Christ to prepare ourselves and make our spirits pliant to live with him. And that process is called sanctification, isn't it? Yeah. That's our job, sanctification. If you, will, if you will look in Ephesians 5 again, look what it says. Husbands, love your wives, verses, verse 25, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, that's his payment. That's for our justification or our imputed holiness. But then he talks about our imparted holiness how he really wants to make our lives. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with, look what it says, the word. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. Turn to John chapter 17. While you're doing that, let me say to you that this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Not many of you have caught the imagery of God being the bridal father in this prayer or the process of sanctification that this prayer echoes from the bridal chapter in Ephesians. Look at this. Look at how many times it says... Those whom thou hast given to be with me. Now think of the image of the bride's father marching her down the aisle so that he can give her away to the groom. That's exactly what God does with his people as they are betrothed. Look at that verse 2. All whom thou hast given him or me, he uses himself in the second person there. Um, look at verse 6. They were, and thou gavest them to me. Look at verse 9. Those whom thou hast given me. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me, and so on and so forth. You see the image of the father of the bride. Coming down with the person whom he has prepared to marry the groom, who is Jesus Christ. Now, what is, what is it that we are to do between now and then? We are to sanctify our lives. We are to let God sanctify our lives. How do we do that? It says in verse 17, 
Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. This is the Father now preparing his people for the Son. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Where is the truth? He says right there, thy word is truth. You understand what he's talking about? It's talking in Ephesians about being washed in the word. It talks in this about being sanctified by the truth. Thy word is truth. What we are to do between now and the time of the consummation of the marriage is to soak ourselves in the word of God. It's exactly what happens. And when that lively word of God gets into us, then it has a sanctifying effect. I can remember my sister and her engagement to her husband. I can remember that they had a rather odd engagement as things go in this world because the overwhelming majority of time that they were engaged, he was serving in the Marine Corps on a ship in the Mediterranean Sea. Therefore, they did not get to know each other through dates. They did not get to know each other through telephone calls. They got to know each other through letters. Now, they had known each other somewhat, of course, before uh, she was betrothed to him. But yet, not in depth, not in the quality that we think comes from spending person-to-person time together. And I can remember my sister waiting on those letters from him, weekly, monthly. I can remember her reading those, not once, but pouring over them, over and over again, and two things happening to her. Number one, she was confirmed in her choice of him as husband and confirmed to keep herself only unto him until that wedding day. But number two, she learned his character through what he wrote. She pieced together who he was, who she was marrying, what were his likes, what were his dislikes. And even as she read those letters, she began to prepare himself, herself to live with him. I can't think of any more perfect analogy than what we have in Scripture. You want to know who you're going to live with forever? Read the letters. Pour over them. Confirm that you will not play the harlot of Babylon. You will not go after your own desires but you will stay true to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not just talking about an abstinence of sex if you're, if you're single or to stay uh, faithful to your partner if you are married. That is not the only thing I'm talking about, although those are required. I am talking about developing a heart. There was, a, there was a, uh, an author in the 14th century who wrote a book, and in that book he said, Chastity without charity, is chained in hell. In other words, if you develop all the purity in the world, but you don't have love, you've lost it all. I'm talking about developing a pliable, responsive heart to live with the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing I want to talk about is the passage. When's it going to come? We don't know. And that drives us crazy. Different from the world, see? Everybody keeps anticipating. I keep hearing, Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to come. Maybe. Hope so. Don't know. It's so different from the way the world... See, when the world has a wedding, it sets the date. 
And everything works toward that date. But you know what happens? We lose our character. We lose attention to the people we're going to marry because we are so occupied with the details of the date, of the ceremony itself. And we get so frustrated because we feel like we're on this in this time pinch. The only time my wife ever reamed me out in our entire relationship was the night before we got married. I remember coming back and I had not been any help to her and I didn't know it. I thought I was being helped to her. Because every time she'd come to me with a question about the wedding, I'd go, I don't care. You know? See, I thought that was a real big help. That's no help. All that says is all on you, baby. You better make it come out right. So here she is with the full weight of the ceremony on her and her mother. See? And I'm saying, I don't care. I'll just show up. I thought that was real big of me. <laughs> and we have the rehearsal dinner, and some of my buddies came in from another state, and I went to her, and, and she, of course she was in the house doing everything for everybody, and there's all the out-of-town company and out-of-town relatives and all that kind of stuff. And I went to her and said, hey, Beck, I'm going to go out with the guys. Is that okay? She said, sure, just get out. Just go on. Just get out. I went, <laughs> My first thought was, uh-oh. I've got a lemon here. Her true colors have just come out. I'm going to spend the rest of my life defending myself. But then I thought, no. This poor woman has been under the duress of this schedule all of this time alone. That's not her. It's the duress of the schedule. You see the way the world arranges for a wedding is to get all ready in the details. And to make the ceremony try to come off just right. And that's not the way God does things. We get so frustrated with God when He won't do things on our schedule. When He won't show up like we thought He was going to. When He cancels out of this or we feel like He ought to do that and He doesn't do it. We get so frustrated with Him. But you know what happens when we get frustrated with God's timing? It just puts a blot on our character that we're going to be ashamed of later on. I heard a story, I love this story, about a guy who volunteered, thought he was real, being a real big big heart here, volunteered to meet his wife at a shopping center, take off of work and go shopping with her, with her because it's something that they needed to buy together. They were supposed to meet at an appointed time in front of an appointed store. He showed up on time, grouching the whole way, didn't like shopping, had too much work to do, didn't like this whole stuff. She got delayed. And the longer she was delayed, the madder he got. Finally, a half an hour when she wasn't there, he just was so furious. He just thought he'd fix her wagon. So there was one of these little picture booths. Remember those picture booths in the in the malls that they, you could pump in a quarter and get snapshots and you know in the strips, you know? You go in and wheel the thing up and so anyhow, he goes in this picture booth, pumps in a quarter, and makes his face in the most ferocious, awful thing he could. Like that. Like that, he's so mad. My cat, see? Flash, flash, flash. Took that little strip of pictures, handed it to a vendor out in front of the store where they're supposed to be. He said, Look, if my wife shows up, describes his wife, give her these. Well, his wife did show up. The vendor gave her that strip of those pictures. He thought he'd fixed her wagon. She kept those pictures. 
And nowadays, when anybody asks, are you married? She says, yes, as a matter of fact, I have some pictures of my husband. Would you like to see them? I love it. I love it. You know, we get so frustrated with God about his timing and when he's going to do this and when he's not going to do this. You know, when we get when we get into the mansion of glory with him, he's just liable to open up his... Say, look, i got some uh, prenuptial pictures of you here. Would you like to see these? And we're going to say, no. See? Don't get caught up in the schedule. Don't get caught up in the details. You leave that to God. And when he comes, it'll be just right. You know my favorite sound in all the world? Think of your favorite sound. Just for a second. I'm going to close here. Think of your favorite sound. What is that? The laughter of children? That's a neat one, isn't it? Ocean? Uh, symphony? What, what's it? You know what mine is? The garage door opener. You know why? Because whenever I hear that, I'm home without somebody there. And if I'm there without Beck and that garage door opener comes, goes off, I say, ah, she's home. Now I can feel complete. And if Beck and I are waiting up for a kid on a date, you know, you know how you do. You don't want to go to bed and you're waiting up. Finally you fall asleep. Oh, you're doing this right here. And the garage door opener goes off. And you go, ah, oh, he's home. Oh, that's great. Guys, how'd it go? Did you have a good time? favorite sound in the whole world. You know what? (laughs) One of these days, no matter what your status is right now, no matter whether you live alone and your garage door opener never goes off except for when you work it, or you have a family and it goes off often like mine does, you're going to have the same feeling when that trump happens, when that shout comes that I have when the garage door opener goes off. You're going to say, finally, Finally, we're all together. And that's how it ought to be. Pray with me. God, as Pastor Moulton comes and brings us to your sacrament, remind us of the imagery of the wedding. Remind us that you paid with this brokenness for us to be your bride. And you are putting the cup forth to us in proposal to us and if we drink of it then we are saying to you yes we want to be married and yes we will keep ourselves pure for you and we will try as much as your spirit helps us to make our spirits pliable to live with you forever we pray in Jesus name